Welcome to 15 Minutes of Mental Toughness with your host, Dr. Rob Bell. Dr. Rob interviews expert coaches, executives, and athletes about mental toughness and their hinge moments. The hinge. It connects who we are with who we become, and it only takes one. And now for your host, Dr. Rob. Um, and about four hours into that conversation, it hit me like a bolt of lightning. I went, no, what? Because of everything I've been through, I can have these conversations. Like other people on the plane, because they were so focused, they literally had nothing to contribute. They had no, the depth of what they could talk about wasn't as valuable. And I realized, I was like, everything that I've been through has built up this toolbox of things I can talk about, of value mm-hmm. I can give, of conversations I can have, which in sales helps a lot because I can talk to anybody about anything on a path to somewhere else. Uh, and it was in that moment, literally, I can remember sitting there going, oh man, like it's all been for a reason. Hey, this is Dr. Rob Bell. If you want a free ebook, the best mental toughness quotes that will make you better, just text Dr. Rob Bell, that's D-R-R-O-B-B-E-L-L, to this number, 33444. You'll get a download right away. Are you one of nearly 7 in 10 Americans who doesn't feel fully rested when the alarm clock rings? Do you dread your mornings? Let's change that. Psalm Sleep is a drug-free, non-habit-forming sleep drink in a small can. They can help save your nights from tossing and turning. Find out for yourself at getsom.com and stop dreading your alarm. Psalm Sleep, it gives you Z's. Our guest today has over 20 years in sales and is a sales coach, although he does a better job as helping sales teams and their processes. Uh, he's also a marine biologist, which is a first for this show. And he didn't start in formal sales until he's age 27. He's the author of the book, Selling with Authentic Persuasion. I love this part. Transform from order taker to quarter breaker. This podcast is titled The Authentic Persuasion So, and you can learn more about our guest, Jason Cutter, at jasoncutter.com. Jason, thanks so much for joining us, man. Thanks for having me, Dr. Rob. I'm super excited for us to make this happen, to be a part of this, and to uh, you know, just provide value and just chat with you more than anything. It's just going to be Absolutely, fun. man. Well, I mean, we got connected through a networking group, which I, you never know where these paths are going to lead. And I've always enjoyed speaking with you. And, and one of the things I wanted you to start with, though, is start with, you know, your very first experience with sales about like your mom that would happen every two <laughs> years. Talk to us about that. <laughs> yeah. So um, growing up, uh, my parents, once they got to a certain point, they, when they were making enough money, they started buying new cars. And it started to be a routine about every two years, we'd go to a dealership. And most people, when they think about going to a car dealership and buying a new car, they want a car. Emotionally, they want a car. Intellectually, they got to deal with that. The part that most people don't enjoy is the unknown of what's going to happen when dealing with a salesperson. And my mom, she is very analytical. My dad is very analytical. Both of them, before they retired, my mom was in banking and finance. My dad was an engineer. They both moved their way up in various organizations. Um, And unfortunately for 
the salespeople my mom interacted with, one of her first jobs out of high school was working at a furniture store in the back office. And she would hear and see what the salespeople would do and say about customers in terrible ways, all the terrible stuff you would imagine and hate as a customer. That's what they joked about, laughed about, like how they, you know, ripped people off on, on furniture deals and stuff like that. So when we would go to car dealerships as a kid, you know, I'm, I'm six, seven, eight years old on up. Um, it would literally be a three, four hour plus adventure where it's just me sitting in front of a TV in a lobby while my parents are just battling and my mom's just tearing through salespeople. They're throwing every manager they can, every person. In fact, I, I was talking to my mom about it recently and she reminded me when we bought one car, uh, I think it was 88 or 89. Uh, we were at the dealership for nine hours on a Sunday um, just because she was nine not hours. let them screw us over. Yeah. So that's my upbringing. That's what I felt about sales was like sales is terrible. Sales is gross. Uh, and salespeople are just trying to get you. So yeah, that was my first impression of sales. I always tell my wife, like when we're purchasing a car, when we're in that process, I tell her, I said, honey, they're going to be talking about us any either way when we leave here. So let's make sure that we know what we're doing. Yeah. But yeah. um so, man, we got to start out. Tell us the story about becoming a marine biologist before we get into that hinge moment, which I think is fantastic. What about marine biologists, yeah. man? So with that upbringing, right? So we combined analytical parents who, who you know, on defense about salespeople. Uh, I was also a shy, awkward, bullied child. Uh, I'm an only child. So it was just me and my parents. Uh, me and people didn't necessarily get along really well. I didn't really have a, a great experience. You know, I, people liked me. Junior high and high school was a little bit better than elementary school. Um, but it was definitely not a career path I wanted to, which was dealing with people. And uh, I, I had this great biology teacher in school in junior high turned me on to marine biology as one of the segments. And I was like, this is amazing. This is great. And just, it was when Shark Week first came out on Discovery Channel, like I'm mid forties. So like that first came out and I was recording it on VHS uh, every year and then watching it and buying all the books. And so um, I just went into marine biology and it was something I was really interested in. It was kind of like a, hey, I like sharks, so let's do marine biology more than I want to make a career out of this and a longstanding thing. Um, but yeah, so I ended up going to UC Santa Cruz, got my degree in marine biology, tagged sharks for years during school and after school with a nonprofit organization around there, did lots of cool shark tagging stuff, and then also literally couldn't get a job for $8 an hour scrubbing boats with that degree, with tons of hours of shark tagging experience. Um, I couldn't get that, that job for scrubbing boats. They gave it to a master's student. It was so competitive. And I was like, I do not feel like going to graduate school. Like, I don't know what I want to do with my life. I felt lost at that moment. Yeah. I mean, do you have any cool, like really cool shark tagging stories? I mean, you know, one of the craziest things, and this was a new discovery at the time. So one of the things we would do is we'd go out and great white sharks, uh, pretty big in California, right? There's the red triangle. I was in Santa Cruz. So there's, you know, Ananuevo Island, big sea lion breeding area, great white sharks just swim around and, and do their thing. And so what we do is we go out of the boat. And luckily, when I started with this organization, they had just upgraded boats the year before. Uh, years before they'd always had a 16 foot boat and I started working with them and they had a 21 foot boat, um, which, you know, is, is good. You want a bigger boat, uh, sure. kind of like jaws, right? You're going to need a bigger boat. You need um, a bigger boat. You're going to need a bigger boat. And so, uh, we would go out there and I was a young guy, you know, 18, 19, 20, you know, in that range. 
And uh, my job was to keep the great white sharks from eating the giant bait, usually part of like a sea lion that had died and then they, you know, had it, um, was to keep this shark away from that. And we're talking anywhere between 13 and 18 foot great white sharks. I've got a stick and I've got to poke the 7,000 pound shark away from the sea lion. Um, one of the most interesting days, which was kind of groundbreaking at the time, they always thought great white sharks were so low right? This is before a lot of like tracking, tagging stuff. And so you only see one at a time. They thought they were territorial. In one day, we had three 18 foot great white sharks circling our 21 foot boat at the same time. And of course I'm, you know, 20 years old, I'm the bait guy. Uh, and uh, we got somebody tagging and somebody filming underwater. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's that, you know, I still have all my fingers and toes and, and arms and legs. So, uh, you know, I count that as a win. No, I dig that, man. It's very cool. And so as we spoke, man, your, your hinge moment, right? That one moment, one event, sometimes one decision that makes all the difference in our lives. And I was fascinated by yours. Please share yours with us. Yeah. So for me, the hinge moment came after a long period of winding paths. So I had worked, I degree in marine biology, tag sharks, that didn't go anywhere. I wasn't sure what I want to do with life. Ended up moving to Seattle, worked at Microsoft for a couple of years, thinking I wanted to get into computers and technology, worked in tech support, was really good at it, but I realized that's not what I wanted to do. So still lost. That's when I ended up in, in the mortgage business and sales at 27. I'm like, okay, well, I'm pretty good with people. I'm gotten used to people. I can help them. Let me get into this. It wasn't really sales. It was more order taking. It was, it was helping people. It was the height of the, the housing boom. So it was, it was pretty simple. Um, and then years later, I learned more about sales, but it's like I tried different careers in sales and it didn't work out and I was floating back and forth. Um, and then I found myself different, different long story, but I found myself as a government contractor, a civilian working for an engineering company that worked for government contracts. So I was actually a civilian deployed with the military overseas. And I was on, I don't remember which one it was. It was maybe uh, deployment number three or deployment number four in Afghanistan um, with again, marine biology degree, tech sales. And uh, I had beaten myself up mentally for years, just forever about my winding path. I'd met people all the time. They had a degree, they got a degree, they got a, a job, they were in that career for years, they had a family, they, they like checked all the boxes of the American dream in the right order. So it seemed on the outside. Uh, and for me, I just felt like just mentally just depressed and, and upset because my path was so windy. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I found myself, we, our job was to fly around and um, doing secret squirrel stuff. And uh, I remember this conversation. It was a long flight and was talking to a pilot. It started from uh, Grant Cardone's 10X book, which I had given to him talking about real estate investing. I also spent some time cleaning fish tanks for a living, like Chinese restaurants and stuff. When I was in community college, uh, talking marine biology, talking about sales, talking about business, talking about personalities and behaviors. Um, and about four hours into that conversation, it hit me like a bolt of lightning. I went, you know what, because of everything I've been through, I can have these conversations like other people on the plane, because they were so focused, they literally had nothing to contribute. They had no, the depth of what they could talk about wasn't as valuable. And I realized I was like, everything that I've been through has built up this toolbox of things I can talk about, of value mm -hmm. I can give, of conversations I can have, which in sales helps a lot because I can talk to anybody about anything on a path to somewhere else. Uh, and it was in that moment, literally, I can remember sitting there going, oh man, like, it's all been for a reason and made me who I am and like given me this depth 
uh, that others, you know, might not have. So when that conversation, what was the next step? What was that decision that you had to make? You know, for, for me, it was, it was acceptance and it was just being happy in my own head and realizing that. And then it was about taking what I had done and moving forward in other ways, right? Instead of feeling lost, like, oh, what I've done is not worth it. And it's just this mess, right? This, this mosaic of, of messy path. Instead, going, okay, well, what have I done? What's valuable? And then that actually led to me looking back at times where I was the most successful and the most happiest, providing the most value, which was to sales teams. And we had affiliates at the time. So going to their office, working with their teams, helping them fix what was not working right, helping them close more deals. Um, and I realized like that plus operations management was kind of what I really loved doing and, and that whole thing, uh, which then I was like, you know what, just tie it together and help me moving forward. I enrolled in, in getting my MBA online. I did that while I was deployed and at home and was like, okay, let me get the business to go with it. Cause again, I'm a Marine biology dude. Who's done some sales. I'm like, let me learn more about business and finance yeah. and structure, and then take that with me and add that to what I know. Um, and then, yeah, it's, uh, since then it's just been, you know, that, that direction. So you went kind of from the mosaic of messy to the mosaic yeah. of many. See what I did there? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was kind of clever. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. What, what is it about like working with sales teams, man, that really get you going? You know, for me, one of the things I've identified, and this is an evolution. So even just recently, I've really looked at like, why do I enjoy that? Why do I like, um, you know, for me, there's, I have a mission statement I've come up for myself. Uh, and the first part is in encouraging and enabling light bulb moments. So I love when I can help somebody or say something or give somebody an idea or, or you know, coach somebody. And they're like, oh, that's great, right? Especially if it works. What I love about sales is somebody struggling. And I love in, in person, face to face is, is always fun, like working with teams in a call center. Cause it's like, hey, try saying this. They get on the phone, they say it, it works. It's like, ah, I was like, yeah, no, it's great. Do that again and again. So that coaching feedback loop is fun. Um, and then the other part for me, which is another part of my mission is to help the underdog win at their own game. And for me, I was an underdog. Like I come from an underdog family. You know, I shared about that in the background. Like, you know, for me, um, and, and most people don't end up in sales as a lifelong choice. Very few people I've talked to as a kid, they're like, I can't wait to grow up because I just want to sell things to people. Um, cause that's, you know, my lifelong path. Uh, people, you know, as, as a kid, they want to be a doctor. Very few people want to be a salesperson when they grow up, which means most of us like myself fall into sales. And me, I realized even just a few months ago, I have received zero moments of sales training. Um, I went from easy sales and mortgage, which I didn't receive any sales training, like how to persuade, how to have conversations, how to like, you know, be a sales professional. I went from there to self-employed. And then I went to another company that thought I knew everything. So they just expected me to build everything. And every company has done that since. And so I know what that feeling is like when you enter into a career that you weren't planning on doing, that you don't know if you're going to be good, that most people think is gross. Most people think sales is gross uh, because of bad experiences like it, we've all had. Um, and you're not given any training or coaching. And for me, that's an underdog. And I just love working with that group of people because if they get it and they can do sales in the in a way that feels good for them and the customers, they can actually create a different experience where people actually enjoy salespeople instead of what we talked about earlier with the car dealership example. Right. I mean, where do you see when you start working with a team and, and or just in general, 
where do you see that most people get stuck with their, you know, either the head trash or the processes, but where do most people get stuck in that sales? <laughs> Uh, before you said head trash and process, I was going to say the, the head trash and the mindset, but it's both, right? So there's, there's two parts. There's the process we could talk about just briefly. Most people just don't have a process. Most people, even if they're a company, they, they, a lot of companies think that salespeople should just do what salespeople do and have a conversation. You should just know what you're doing and they don't have a process. A lot of people who end up in sales are coming from it, from a personality standpoint of, um, generally, and this is a generalization, but a lot of people right. end up in sales because they don't fit in anywhere else because they don't like to follow other rules and they like having conversations and, and being more of a, a free spirit, lone wolf cowboy. That's just kind of doing their sales thing. Yeah. And so charismatic, Hey, yeah. Charismatic yeah. storytelling, like relationship building, you know, positive or negative, but like, that's what they sure. focus on. And so then you say, here's a process and a script. Most of those people are like, no, that's I'm in sales. Cause I don't like rules and structure. Just let me do my thing. And so that's usually missing. Um, but really the, the head trash part, one of the biggest things that happens and what keeps people from being successful in sales that I see goes to that order taker side. And what happens is before any of us got into a sales career, before anyone ends up in, in a role that involves selling, they've been a customer. And as a customer, I promise you've had bad experiences where you bought something from that charismatic salesperson who talked you into something and either in the moment or right afterwards or a week later, you realized, oh crap, I shouldn't have bought that. That sucked. They totally talked me into it. They totally manipulated me and I hated it. Then what happens is that person ends up in sales, right? Kind of like myself, end up in sales and go, in my mind, I promise, like golden rule, I promise not to do that to anyone else. Like I don't want anyone else to feel the way I felt buying. So I'm going to be the other extreme, which means they end up being an order taker. And then what happens is they're nice. They build rapport, they build relationships, they care, they come from usually a lot of empathy. The problem is then they stop there and they just hope people will like that enough to buy and hand over money. But people don't, they need convincing, they need persuading, they need help making a decision because that primal part of our brain doesn't like change. And so they need a professional to help them. But people end up in the order taker end of the spectrum because they're afraid of being the manipulator, the used car salesperson, right? Like that one that we all think of. Um, and so that's what gets them stuck is they're afraid of using persuasion because they think that's negative. Um, but it's really about the process and how you go about it. I mean, you talked about that in the book, the difference between persuasion and like manipulation, because that's mm -hmm. what we think about that. Can you, can you delve into that a little bit further? Yeah. So manipulation is a very clear example. So manipulation is to basically do something to something else and uh, for your own benefit and not it's right. Like one good example is clay. You manipulate clay and you turn clay into a vase. The clay doesn't have a choice. The clay is just there and you're using it and then you make it whatever you want. It doesn't get a vote. Um, when you manipulate people, it's kind of with that same tactic and that same focus. Um, and it's really, whether the other person benefits or not, like it's for me, I'm manipulating you for my own goals, for my own needs, whatever happens to you, I don't really care because it's all about me. Persuasion is a little more vague in the definition. So you have to be careful with that, which means I'm doing something, I'm persuading you to take an action. I focus on positive persuasion, which I want, I want to persuade you into taking an action that will benefit you 
and benefit me, no matter what, at least benefit you, but I want to persuade you for your reasons, right? Like I want you to make decisions for your reasons, um, not necessarily mine. And the key difference there is, is really from a place of abundance, which 7 billion people on the planet, I don't need to trick you. I don't need to manipulate you. Uh, I want to help persuade you and, and have you take action that makes sense for you, but I'm also not going to force it right? Like if you really don't want to make these decisions, that's up to you. Um, and I'm going to do it from a place of empathy, but also abundance. Yeah. Well, the people that I guess fall into sales, what's the biggest fear that they have? I mean, is it the fear of rejection? It's it, obviously it's going to be slightly different for everybody, but sure. usually that's what it is. It's that, it's that fear of rejection. And for me, what I have found in researching this, talking to people, looking at so many different salespeople and so many different organizations over the years, I mean, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of them is that in that primal part of our brain, that amygdala that still is trying to focus on our survival, right? All it cares about is keeping us alive long enough so that we can procreate and keep our genes going and keep dominating as a species, right? That part of our brain is still stuck a long time ago. It has not evolved as fast as our society has and our, and our, our group has. And the challenge is, is that our survival as a species has come because we are tribal, right? There, the, we, as a group, we have survived and dominated the planet in, in everything that we've wanted to do. And so a, a very bad fate a long time ago was to be kicked out of the tribe. Like if you did something wrong or you were sick or you were disturbance or you screwed something up, you got banished and you didn't make it, right? Like out in the plains, out in nature, 10,000 years ago, you're toast, right? Like you're not making it by yourself. That part of our brain still thinks that. So rejection, uh, speaking, public speaking, why people fear public speaking, in my opinion, is because what that part of our brain is worried about is being kicked out of the tribe of humans, right? If I ask you to buy something and you say no, that's rejection. Oh my God, they reject me. Maybe I'll get rejected from the whole tribe. And then, then where am I going to go? I'm just going to die. And so it's safer just to you know stay in our little bubble. Yeah. You and I are both from the same, well, I mean, because it's fact. I mean, our brain is, has one job, right? And that's just to keep us safe. That's it. That's it. Keep us safe. And I think when it comes to mental toughness, you, we have to counter that negative voice that says, man, don't put yourself out there. Or don't do this. And, and then it, it keeps us from our goals, keeps us from, yeah. you know, really achieving our full potential. Yeah. And if, and if we look at like what you've done and, and puke and rally and those kind of things where your mind is saying, stop, like, this is our comfort zone. This is our limit. Like, stop here, you idiot. Like we know where safe is. We know we can survive. If you don't go past this line, we don't know what's on the other side of that line. Uh, it's probably death, right? That's what our brain is trying to tell us. So just stop. And, and like your example and what you did and pushing yourself in that, you know, uh, hinge moment for you, where it's just like, no, um, no, shut up little part of your brain. I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to push myself. And then we just create these new boundaries that go, wait a second. I didn't die. I did a public speaking event. I spoke on a podcast. I didn't die. I asked this person if they wanted to buy and they said no, and I didn't die. And so like, you just, just got to push yourself. Yeah. Where do you see the mental toughness when it comes to sales? So the, the thing is with sales, if you're amazing at it, kind of like baseball, right? As a hitter, if you're amazing at sales, you might be successful 30% of the time. 
20% of the time, 40% of the time, depends on what you're selling, who you're selling to, what kind of conversations you're having, you know, and what your pipeline looks like. But let's say, let's say if you're amazing at sales, you're closing 30% of the time, right? That's like a batter who goes into the hall of fame because they have a, a you know, a, a 0.33 batting average, which is amazing. What that means is that batter and that salesperson have failed 65, 70 percent of the time, right? Yeah, that's great. Yeah, they're they're, you know, Hall of Fame. But that also takes into account failing almost 70% of the time and still being the best at their craft. And so the mental toughness is knowing if I if when I win my game, I'm still going to get punched in the face 7 out of 10 times or punched in the gut and I've got to push past that and know, you know, that I got to keep going. I can't stop. You can't stop every time you hear no, because you won't make it very far. You talk about in your book, unsuccessful people have that attitude of well, what's in it for me. I mean, talk to us about the converse of that and how that's, you know, actually works. Yeah. So the big thing is that abundance, right? So instead of what's in it for me, especially as a salesperson, like I, I need to get what I need to get. It's a place of like, if, you know, and my biggest mantra and biggest quote that I go by is Zig Ziglar's is if you help, when you help enough other people get what they want in life, you'll have everything you want in life. Um, and so that's huge because coming from that place, instead of it being about me, instead of it being with like with my handout to get what I want, then it's about me helping and serving other people. And the key is with sales, especially, is when you do that, when you're selling from that perspective, which is I'm here to serve you. Sales is service. If I can help you, it will benefit me. If I just try to take from you and think about what's in it for me, it's not going to work well because you'll detect that. You'll pick up on that vibe. Short term, that might work, but long term, that doesn't. Um, instead, dismissing that part. Cause that's that part of our brain. Again, that we're talking about that primal part. It only cares about our survival, right? Like it's only caring about us and what we need. And you've got to shift past that to make it so you can help other people. Cause then when you're selling to other people and you're making it about them, cause keep in mind your cost, your customers, your prospective customers also only care about themselves. And so instead of it being a battle of who cares about themselves even more, Make it all about them because they're not going to change. They're the customer. So you want them to get what they need. So you make it all about them and then, you know, get, find the success you want that way. I remember when we moved into our new house here, my wife, this is before kids, there was a vacuum cleaner salesman that came in. Somehow he made it in the house. And I don't know, I don't know if it's the foot and door technique or what, but he made it in the house. And the only thing he spoke about the entire time was don't, you know, I, I need one more sale to get this vacation. Don't you want me to get this vacation? <laughs> I totally remember like audibly like laughing out loud because it like, it was so funny. I was like, I, I don't care about you and your vacation. And it was just, it was sunny. I, that, that was tattooed in my mind, man, because it was like, you're just focused on you. Not even about, Hey, how can this vacuum cleaner help us out? And, and here's the interesting thing. So here's the, here, here's the sad part is a lot of times, cause I've met some people who have done those sales tactics. Um, I met somebody once who went door to door and sold magazine sales and said, Hey, I'm selling magazines to raise money for my school trip for high school. So we can go to Mexico or we can go build houses. The dude was 24 years old, but looked like he was 16. He wasn't even in high school. He was totally lying. Right. Like, it, like it, it's usually, there isn't that vacation. There isn't like, I, I'm going to lose my job. It's that manipulation just 
works with a segment of people and then it becomes a numbers game and a terrible numbers game because they're hoping for that sympathy vote where they come across somebody who wants to buy a $2,000 vacuum uh, out of sympathy for some person so they don't lose their job or so they can make that president's club. Um, and again, that's what gives salespeople such a bad name. And, and it's funny too, because some of the advice when people push me is like, well, what's the one thing I can do to be successful in sales? Of course, you can't nail it down to one thing, right? Like you can't nail it down to one thing for any of your clients and your audience as well. There's not one thing. It's a collection of things. But the one thing, if I have to say it, is always just do the opposite of what you think salespeople should do. Just literally do the opposite. That's my one piece of advice. So we when take the George, somebody, the George Costanza route. Just do the opposite. Whatever you yeah. think a salesperson is supposed to do to win, just do the opposite. And it will blow people's minds away because they're expecting that dude who came to your door. And George Costanza was also, well, he played a marine biologist. So we got yes. this Seinfeld <laughs> thing going on. <laughs> you got to be careful, though, how far you go with your pretending to be something, because then you might find yourself on a beach, uh, you know, <laughs> in trouble. Taking golf balls out of whales. <laughs> yeah, it's good, man. In, in your book, you also talked about stop stopping, like how the yeah. pausing was bad. And I know this is really getting into the intricacies, but lay yeah, that part out, lay that part out for us. Cause that, that was always contrary to what I thought. So there's two parts of it, right? So one of the caveat, and I love that you brought this up because this is one of the tactical things. I don't talk a lot about tactical stuff, not just in podcasts, but people in general, because usually the mindset is what's needed, the process is needed. And then like the little, in, I call them the intangibles, like the intangibles will help you win the game at a pro level, but it can't teach you how to do that until you got the rest. But I love that you brought this up. And so the thing with stopping, and this is a telltale sign of order takers, right? An order taker is not a derogatory term. It's not a, a bad label. It's usually just a condition. It's a state of affairs for somebody who's supposed to be selling and persuading people, but they're more taking orders and their financial uh, level, you know, uh, shows that their closing percentage shows that like the stats all show they're an order taker, not a sales professional. And so the, what happens is, is when an order taker, that person who builds rapport relationships, but they don't want to push someone, they don't want to manipulate, they don't want to cross the line, and they're afraid of rejection. When, when somebody asks them a question, right? So you ask me a question, and then I answer that objection, that question, whatever it is, and then I stop, right? So you say, how much is this going to cost? And then I throw out some answer, and then I stop, and I pause. And I'm pausing because it's the courteous thing to do, which is I want to make sure that answer sinks in. And then as an order taker, because I'm courteous and I don't want to be confrontational, I want to give you a chance to ask more questions before I move on. Because most likely I was talking about something and you cut me off to ask me about the price, right? Because your brain is afraid as this customer. And so uh, what happens is I pause. You want to fill in that gap. Nature hates a vacuum. And so your brain is spinning as a customer. Your uh, More fears come up, more questions come up. So you throw another question at me. I answer it as the nice person I am. Like, I like, what's, like what's the refund policy? Yeah, what's the refund? Well, we have a refund policy. You have up to 30 days and you can refund. Just contact customer service, send us an email, uh, and they'll get you taken care of if you need a refund after you buy. And then I pause. And then you want to keep going because your brain, again, is still afraid. If, if it wasn't afraid, you, are, you would have already handed me money. So by the nature of us having a conversation and me working with you in this persuasion sales process, I'm helping you overcome 
whatever it is that's in the way of you buying, right? At a fundamental level. And so <clears throat> when I pause, I give you space. The challenge is, is whoever's asking questions is in control, which means if you're asking questions and I'm answering and you're asking and I'm answering, you're just basically punching me. I call it the death by a thousand punches because you'll literally knock me out by asking me questions until the point when I don't have a good enough answer or you've justified in your brain. Yeah, this sounds like a bad thing because I just can't stop thinking about bad things. <clears throat> The key is to stop that. The key, and there's a bunch of strategies. Obviously, you can check out the book um, to find out what to do instead about that. But the key is to stop stopping, is to answer that question and then go back to what you were talking about, to regain control, to ask a question, um, not to manipulate, but just to regain control because otherwise that person's just going to spin out of control. And keep in mind, this is different than the strategy a lot of salespeople, sales gurus, sales coaches, a lot of people are taught, which is when you ask a question to pause and let them to answer, right? Especially when it comes down to price, that's different. I'm talking about when you ask me a question, I answer, and then I just leave a vacuum. That's different than me saying, hey, Rob, the price is $10,000. Is this something you'd like to move forward with? And then I pause because the next person that speaks loses. That's mm -hmm. totally different than what I'm talking about. You like that? You like that pause there? That was good. That was good. That was all right. <laughs> so let me ask you, let me ask you this. Cause I've always found that in, I mean, I learned this in uh, middle school and high school, right? It's like, you, you can't let that girl know that you like them. Once you know you like them, then it's done. So like, you really can't care about whether you get that date or not, because yep. the more you care about it, then it's not as free flowing. I mean, is that the same exact, is, does that hold water in sales as well? A hundred percent. Fundamentally, you can't want the deal more than the other person in any frame, because as soon as you do, <clears throat> what happens is, is you give the other person all the power and control that girl in high school or even now as adult that you really like and you want to go out with and you keep pursuing and keep asking and keep going after if she says yes she owns you right <laughs> she owns the relationship you did all the move and i'm not saying like you got to play the hard to get you got to be all dramatic and play games but you can't want the deal more than the other person same thing in sales it's why i'm not a huge fan of cold calling and the persistent cold calling that companies are taught and people do and people have done forever because if i cold call you um i'm asking you if you have a problem and i'm asking to sell you something you own the relationship. I was basically begging for the date and you agree or not, but you own me, right? Like different versus, you know, if you were to reach out to me and we were to talk about it, then I'm in more control because you have a need. Um, but yeah, fundamentally can't want the deal more than the other person. And where we all know that's the case in sales, where it feels gross is the, Hey, if you buy by, if, you know, if you make a decision, you sign up by Friday, I'll give you this deal. Or by the end of the quarter, if you do this deal or, Hey, you know, when you try to walk away from the dealership and they're like, wait, 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 we'll get, we'll throw in this other thing. Right. It's like you own them. Most people don't realize it, but you own that car salesperson because they are throwing everything at you to try to basically get that date. Um, and that's, you, you don't want to be in that position. Again, the key and, and the way to overcome that is abundance. I want to help you. I really want to help you. I know that what I have to offer can help you based on what you told me. And I also know it's up to you, right? One of the big things in, in one point in my sales career, I uh, used to help people with credit card debt get into nonprofit credit counseling. So somebody who has 50,000 credit card debt at 29%, 
mm. help them avoid bankruptcy. Seems like it would be easy, right? Like, hey, this should be an easy decision. It's not because people are attached to their credit cards and their debt and their spending <laughs> habits and all kinds of weird stuff that comes into place, right? It's actually a really hard thing to convince people to stop a habit and a behavior, even if they have $50,000 in credit card at 29%. And their statement says it will take you 33 years to pay off these credit cards uh, at the minimum payment. And so like, it's not easy. There's things I would literally tell people on the phone calls and I would train my reps to say this is, you know what, John, I, I really want to help you. We both know this would make sense, but here's the deal is if you need to think about it, that's fine, but just know that when we hang up and I go home tonight, I don't have $50,000 in credit card debt. But if you, if we hang up and you don't call back and you just go and keep doing what you're doing, when you go to bed tonight, you still have $50,000 in credit card debt. I want to help you, but I can't do it for you. Like it's up to you. You've got to want it. Um, and that's why I literally tell people and not manipulation. I truly meant it, right? There's 150 million people in the U S with credit card debt. I didn't need that dude. I wanted to help him, but like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to trick him. Cause then he's just going to be pissed later on when he signs up if I tricked him. So, yeah. Man, in your, in your podcast, which I love too, I mean, it's like, you know, the Authentic Persuasion Show. I mean, you, you talk with hundreds of experts. I mean, what is something that has really stood out to you with all those interviews that you've done? You know, I talk to a lot of people from various walks of life, especially people who are in sales, have sales roles. And, and one of the biggest things that confirmed what I had always thought was a lot of people who were successful because of one trait they put above most everything else, which is curiosity. Persistence was kind of tied, like persistence and grit is kind of up there. But there's one thing that stood out with most people was curiosity. And what I've found is that really good salespeople come from a place of being curious about their company, their product, their service, the industry, but also the people they're talking to. They literally want to know everything they can about that person and come at it a place like, okay, now that I know all these things, how can I help you? How can I serve you? How can I either sell you what I've got or tell you what you should do instead? But people who are naturally curious or build the curiosity muscle, which is what I did, because I wasn't naturally curious, especially not about people. I was curious about science, dinosaurs, then sharks. But again, I didn't have a good relationship with people. So I wasn't curious about people in any way until I got into sales. And I was like, okay, maybe I should be curious about people. Uh, that's, that's been one of the biggest standout things. I'm curious, does that, uh, does that tie into learning? Like they have a desire for learning as well? Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's people who are curious and they're learning from like a book standpoint. Um, other times I've seen people who are just curious and learning about individuals, right? They're not necessarily big on learning more, reading, podcast, studying, um, either salespeople I've experienced or others. Uh, but yeah, some kind of learning about something instead of assuming they know it all. One of the biggest detriments I see to salespeople who struggle with being successful in a sales role, whether it's you're in a cubicle or you're a coach or consultant, you have to sell your, your own service is, um, when they just assume they know everything about everybody and they know what everyone should want and they don't care what makes that individual tick. They just assume everyone should want the thing that they're selling. Hmm. Jason, what is one question I should be asking that I'm not asking? Let's see. Is a hinge moment? I don't know. That's a tough one. I'm thinking like, is a hinge moment necessary for success? Um, 
what's the, the biggest thing that could help somebody shift the way they view sales? I don't know. Yeah, like please. People. What is the um, biggest? So for me, one of the biggest mindset shifts beyond what we've talked about is viewing sales as a service to other people. And that when as a professional in, in, in a career, if you can help somebody and you don't, you're not, you're not able to get them to move forward. You're not able to persuade them. You're not able to get them unstuck. If you can't do that or you're unable to do that, you've actually let them down. And at a certain level, you failed them, right? So imagine you have a friend who's sick and you want to get them to a doctor and they won't let you and you basically give up. You failed them. You let them down. You haven't helped them how you could have, right? In our personal relationships, we're usually willing to go as far as it takes to get our friend or family better. Um, in sales, most people stop short. And it's a dra dramatically different shift when you view what you're selling as a way to help people, assuming it actually does help people in some way, and what it means if they don't buy from you, and taking that personal as like you want to help them from that place for their benefit, not for yours. It's a completely different shift in your mind. And so that usually helps a lot of people get unstuck and view sales as something different. Right? Sales is not something when done, in my opinion, properly, sales is not something you do to somebody. Sales is something you do for somebody and with somebody. Awesome, Jason. Man, where would you want people to uh, learn more about you and follow you and, and get your book, Selling with Authentic Persuasion? Um, easiest thing you mentioned early on, the best thing is jasoncutter.com. So I've made okay. that a hub for everything I have. They go there, they can find a link to buy the book directly for themselves, buy copies for people they know. We also do book clubs with teams uh, that want to buy them for everyone on their team and, and add some extra coaching to that. Uh, they can find the podcast through there. I do a lot of stuff on LinkedIn, getting into more Instagram. I know I'm behind. Club, Clubhouse. I'm kind of a late bloomer. But uh, yeah, so all of that, jasoncutter.com is a good, good hub to start with. And are you digging Clubhouse? Uh, I am, you know, it's, it's a balance because I like it. Uh, you can easily spend way too much time on there and go down a ton of rabbit holes uh, that are not productive in life. Um, but I am having fun. I really love doing some regular clubhouses with some other salespeople and experts like myself that come at things from different perspective, hosting rooms and just open formats for people to talk about sales and, and challenges and wins. And yeah, it's, it's the access to people and just on demand and kind of that live radio show stuff is uh, it's fascinating. It's pretty fun. Jason, thanks so much for joining us, buddy. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Thank you for listening to the Mental Toughness Podcast. If you like what you heard today, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast. You can also check us out on Twitter at Dr. Rob Bell or visit our website at drrobbell.com.